Hello and welcome to the arbitration station. Is that the main issue of ISDS today? So we cannot invite Joel to the next episode. You're the native speaker. It can't be very unique. Unique means one of a kind. It's either unique or it's not. It's like you're, you're either <laughs> pregnant or you're not. Did you say Gayard? Mm-hmm. Yeah, with a D. I should not pronounce the D. I'm getting DCF tattooed on my neck tomorrow, actually. <laughs> it's a question I'm putting up there. <laughs> Welcome, Welcome to, to the, the Arbitration, arbitration station. station. My name is Sadia Bhatti. This is Brian Kodak. And I'm your Wilcox Boy. And together, we are your co-hosts for another episode of the Arbitration Station podcast covering both commercial and investment arbitration, 66% serious substance and 33% general ponderings and musings of the arbitration world, and 1% holiday cheer. Happy holidays, guys. Happy holidays. Thank you for your secular reference. Yeah, I know. I was going to say that's exactly. I'm so surprised that you're saying that. That's what the people say in the U.S. Happy holidays to not offend anyone. Yeah, we will probably get back into this since religion is on the table for today. But I assume neither of you is Christian, and nor am I actually. So that's <laughs> seems just reasonable. Yeah, no, that, that's logical. That is funny. That is logical. Yeah. <laughs> We're touching them all, uh, atheism included. But we're uh, recording from a new venue. The International Arbitration Center, the one that we've been talked about the past few episodes, but they've been so kind to invite us and let them use their facilities. So we're literally talking through a hearing space microphone. I feel like we're about to give closing arguments. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but uh, we'll see how this goes. And we're finally looking at you, Joel, in in the flesh. Yes, almost. I'm in Copenhagen, though. I'm not in your uh, nice uh, hearing center. I'm looking at you on video. But actually, the frame just froze. <laughs> No, that was just us playing a trick on you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can't see you anymore. Oh. Well, um, maybe you should pay more taxes over there in Denmark. We're back. Okay. We're back. We're there moving. we go. Okay. Yeah. Well, we can see you projected on like one, two, three, how many screens are there here? At least four. Yeah, um, you're so all over. You're a star. Yeah. I have to buy a new MacBook. I can I can tell the difference in, in camera quality compared to what you guys are using at the center and my 11 years old MacBook Air with a tiny. <laughs> or is it just because you, is it just because you have zero light? Because it's the middle of the night for you. Yeah. <laughs> 4:30 in the afternoon. You have a solar yeah. computer. <laughs> uh, so you are in Copenhagen, Joel, and it. I assume at 3 p.m. it is dark, pitch black. Yes, it's 4.30 here and it's been pitch black for a while, so it's, uh, yeah. I don't know, I feel like I, when I fall asleep every time I close my eyes, you have to just power through with the aid of espresso and nice phone calls with perky lawyers from London. <laughs> yeah, highly caffeinated. <laughs> exactly. Vitamin D supplements, that, that's the trick. No, it's all Christmas parties yeah. here in London. I think I said it last season that yeah. um, London plus Christmas equals no one's at work and everyone's having mulled wine. Yeah, I was just telling Brian, it's so difficult to get, I mean, we, so I've got a deadline on the 20th of December, which isn't very smart, but I, I have a deadline, so I need to work. And it's just like constantly drinks, you know, lunches. Uh, Christmas things, and if you say you're not coming, then people are like, oh, you're such a party pooper, or you're not doing. <laughs> or your... why are you? Yeah, exactly. From the firm? Do you think you're more important than us? <laughs> like, no, but seriously, <laughs> yeah. I missed our office Christmas party last night actually because I set internal deadlines on the twentieth, thinking, uh, oh, this will be good because when I go away, I won't have to work. But then it's just ruined my holiday season. <laughs> <laughs> no. Oh dear. Yep. So before we uh, jump into what we're talking about substantive today, we should uh, mention I.A. Reporter, 
which is our sponsor for this season, it's an online service focused on international investment law. For more than 10 years, I Reporter has offered up-to-the-minute coverage of new arbitrations, recent decisions, and notable policy developments. IA Reporter's team of expert analysts offer informed and incisive analysis as well as investigative reporting on case law firms, universities, and government agencies subscribe to IA Reporter. You can visit iareporter.com. Mm-hmm. Like Yahoo, if you guys have that. <laughs> uh, we have three holiday-themed... Okay, two holiday-themed. <laughs> one, we'll not even close. We'll have to link it with the holiday-themed, the other one. <laughs> yeah. The WTO stands for White Traditional Orthodoxy. That's it. <laughs> what? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Uh, okay, so we have three segments lined up for you today. The first one, Joel, you have to tee up because that was your interview. It was, and I have not actually touched base with Kathleen Clausen, who I interviewed about whether or not WTO stands for what you claim that it stands for, right? <laughs> <laughs> orthodoxy. <laughs> I don't think she will sign up to that, I'm not sure I would either. No. She is, in any event, an associate professor of law uh, at the School of Law in Miami, University of Miami, but I called her on December 10th, which makes sense, uh, because December 10th, when she was in uh, DC, I think, is or was the day that the WTO's appellate body stopped to function mm-hmm. because of blockings of the appointment of the appellate body judges, which we talked about. But it's also a very, very good primer on WTO dispute resolution for nerdy arbitration lawyers who mm-hmm. maybe aren't familiar with that and have problems staying uh, outside of the arbitration box from time to time. Do you guys feel comfortable with, with the WTO procedures? No. Comfortable? No. <laughs> Absolutely. I don't think so. No. Um, but I was, I did interview, before I moved to London, I interviewed for a job in Geneva, and that would have been like a bulk of their work, which I think is quite common um, mm-hmm. for those firms. Yeah, yeah, that's true. There is, of course, sort of an overlap. It's still international dispute resolution. And Kathleen is a perfect person to talk to because she has worked at the PCA and, and does a lot of investment law scholarship. She's also a trade law expert and one of those people who sort of migrate between international arbitration uh, specifically or uh, in particular, I think, investment arbitration and, and uh, WTO law. So a uh, great person to have on and also an American law professor that's so good at talking about their things. <laughs> a <laughs> Susan Frank special. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and then we, the second, uh, I'm just introducing you guys to say your things. Uh, you should tee up, Savia, since it will be your second. Yeah, because it's the holiday season, like we just mentioned. Um, and in fact, t- to be honest, it's actually Christmas. I mean, we can use the word, it is Christmas. It's <gasps> going to be Christmas in a couple of weeks. And uh, Christmas, there's the, you know, it's a religious holiday. Uh, and so we're going to bring in a topic that's linked, which is uh, the intersections between religion and arbitration. So that's going to be exciting. Yeah, because you really wouldn't intersect those two. Uh, <laughs> ah, that's what you think. That's <laughs> Cliffhanger. And then we'll wind up the season, just like we did last season, which, uh, but with a twist, which will be gifts, um, the general category of gifts uh, during the holiday season. But how are we going to link it to arbitration? Well, we'll talk about uh, customs and etiquette for giving or receiving gifts from clients. We'll talk about... Uh, I was thinking, I haven't even told you to, maybe policies on gift giving um, within the office. Mm-hmm. Um, and then maybe we can round off with some nice gifts to your arbitration friends. Mm-hmm. Um, have, should you have any, um, Joel? <laughs> uh, no, oh, I'm generally the, word, 
the world's worst gift giver, and now you caught me off guard in your research. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was just like, hey, where's our gift, Joel? Last year, you really knocked it out of the park, though. I remember we got feedback of, like, thanks for the tips. Yeah, but the world books. Right, which is a general Joel gift. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, well, without further ado, let's move on to the interview. Right, so welcome to the Arbitration Station, Kathleen. It is December 10, and much publicized crisis is about to happen in the WTO dispute settlement system. Uh, but before we jump into that, can you please assume, just for the sake of argument, that I know a thing or two about arbitration, but very, very little about WTO disputes. Could you explain a little bit how WTO disputes are adjudicated for, for this hypothetical person who doesn't know very much about it? <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. Well, thanks so much uh, for having me on, and I'm, I'm, I'm happy to, to try and provide the basics as much as we can in our, our short time together. Um, so you, hypothetical uh, listener, <laughs> will uh, surely be generally familiar with the WTO as an entity, as an international organization. So you know that it's um, an organization of 164 members um, with an additional 22 countries in the process of pursuing accession. And, and historically, you may know, the most important function of the WTO's predecessor, which was the GATT, was negotiation, not dispute settlement. That is, it was negotiating reductions in tariffs and in other tariff barrier, other barriers to trade. But since 1995, uh, with the creation of the WTO, the negotiation function has worked less well and disputes have really dominated. So it makes sense that we, we focus on, on that today. So since 1995, there have been uh, 592 disputes brought to the WTO and over 350 rulings issued. Now let me get right into how the dispute actually works uh, and what's at stake in each WTO dispute. So the subject of a dispute in a WTO case is a governmental measure. So some action that the government has taken that is believed to violate one of the WTO commitments in one of the WTO agreements. There are actually several agreements that make up the, the set that are under the auspices of the WTO, and, and any of them can be at play. Some will be familiar to investment practitioners. There, there are commitments like most favored nation treatment, national treatment, and there are other things uh, in trade that are a little different, that are violations of commitments not to subsidize certain industries, for example, or uh, that when you take a a measure related to food safety, for example, that's only applied to the extent necessary to protect human or animal or plant health. Uh, so, so there are sort of meaty substantive commitments, and then there are uh, more uh, wide-ranging commitments that are applicable applicable across many sectors. That's that's the subject of a dispute. You have one country suing another country, one member of the WTO suing another member about a governmental measure. So the claimant, so to speak, is, is always a yes. state, unlike in investor-state arbitration. Precisely. That's true. And unlike uh, in, in at least the traditional investor-state case, there's also an opportunity for other members to participate in a reasonably robust way through third-party mechanisms. That is that many members choose to participate in, in average disputes as third parties where they can uh, have an opportunity to, to comment on the arguments of both sides and so forth. Shall I turn then to the pr process behind the dispute? Please. We're 
process lawyers. It's <laughs> the nerdy stuff that we're after. <laughs> yes, indeed. I put myself right there uh, with you. So, so first, in uh, in again the traditional fashion, you can imagine a um, a dispute arising when someone actually approaches one one member approaches another member about about it, uh, and and there is uh, at the point of of initiation a, a phase that's going to be. Uh, uh, exceptional in the eyes of investor state practitioners that we usually have a required consultations phase. That is, the the two members have are required to conduct consultations. Uh, usually, for about sixty days is the period that's, that's outlined before they establish a panel. But then, if that doesn't work out, if we're not able to resolve it in the panel stage, we get to the establishment of a panel, which is is actually an exercise of the entire membership of the WTO, uh, which again sounds a little strange, but but we have meetings of the entire membership that are called the dispute settlement body when they all meet uh, as a group, and there they are uh, presented with uh, the the possible establishment of a panel, and and the respondent at that moment can block the establishment of a panel simply by saying we want to block the, the panel establishment, but only they can only do that once. At the second meeting of the entire membership uh, where the issue was raised, uh, no longer can the respondent block the, the panel establishment. At that point, the panel will be established. And again, as is traditional to, to investor state uh, practitioners, that w- there will be a role for the parties to play in setting up uh, the uh, the panel, but it's not as wide-ranging as uh, investor state practitioners are used to. That is, we're not choosing from a blank slate. Usually, uh, the, the members are choosing from a list that the secretariat of the WTO will put together. And likewise, if they're unable to agree on certain members of the panel, then the secretariat will step in and, and com- compose the panel. It's called the composition of the panel. So there's no blocking uh, in, the, in the traditional sense that uh, investor state practitioners may be, may be used to. Yeah, and the, the secretary then can draw upon whatever they want, or is there some sort of official or unofficial list of who is eligible to, to be on a panel, or is it basically in the discretion of the secretariat in this case? There is an indicative list that they use that's usually comprised of experienced uh, bureaucrats or it could be economists, doesn't have to be lawyers, but it's, it's folks who will have some familiarity with international trade issues. Right. Okay. So once the panel is, is composed, then we get to, again, will sound like your typical stages. The main stages are uh, before the first hearing, each side will present its case in writing. So that's where you have uh, your submissions uh, with your exhibits. Then there will be a first hearing where the parties will make their case before the panel. There will then be rebuttals uh, and an oral argument at a second meeting of the panel. There's also uh, an outlined way for experts to participate. So uh, perhaps if one side raises scientific or or other technical matters, the panel may consult experts or appoint even an expert review group to prepare an advisory report. Uh, And you can imagine that in some of these governmental measures, what we are talking about uh, health and safety, for example, there you might uh, have uh, draw from experts uh, more, more frequently than in other circumstances. Now here we get to um, an unusual stage, again, unusual from the eyes of our our average uh, listener, perhaps, and that is that the the panel will submit to the parties 
the descriptive sections of the report and give them an opportunity to comment. So the yeah. outline of the facts and the arguments, right? So there are no, no legal conclusions or findings yet, but it gives them an opportunity to review that and comment in case the, the panel got anything wrong. And that happens again when the panel then gives the parties an interim report, which does include its legal findings and conclusions. And, and that gives them, and then they give them a, a week to review the, the interim report. Now that, that period of review sometimes, of course, is extended as necessary, but eventually we get to an, op an opportunity for the, for the parties to pr provide their comments and then the panel will turn around and issue its final report. Of course, the, having this interim stage can also change the dynamic, uh, as you can imagine, between the parties. Uh, perhaps we see some settlements at that moment, mm -hmm. right, where we don't actually get to the final stage. Uh, and it has other uh, pros and cons that, uh, that you can surely imagine. Once we get to the final report, that here again has a, a sort of a strange trajectory in that it not only goes to the, the two sides to dispute, but it also is circulated to all WTO members. Uh, and it if in, in that report, the panel not only says yes or no to the complaining member as to whether the, the, the measure in question violates the rules, but it also recommends that the measure be made to conform to WTO rules and may suggest how that could be done. So in other words, what's happening is the, the panel is saying, okay, your, your legislation respondent state um, was, was against the WTO rules and, and you need to make it now back within the WTO rules and here are the ways you can do it. You've got to change your measure or remove the measure in certain respects such that it comes into uh, conformity with the rules. The, as I said, the report gets circulated to all the members and, and the members can actually block the uh, finalization of the report uh, if there is a consensus among all of them that not, not to adopt it. Uh, now that's of course not going to happen because, of course, the, the winning party is not going to block the adoption of the report. But it is a step that is part of the WTO process that the, the report is not final, truly final, until it is adopted by the entirety, the DSB, as it's called. Um, there is an opportunity for appeal that I want to come back to in a moment. But um, let me just say the win rate is very high in WTO cases. That is to say that, that complaining parties win in the, the far majority of the, of the time, about 70% of the time they win. And actually compliance is very high. So between 80 and 90%, depending how you count it, that's, that's the number that re reflects how often the responding state then brings the measure into conformity uh, with the rules. So that may come as a surprise, um, especially when we think about the remedies that are involved. So here again, we're in a different place than an investor state, mm. that we have um, three remedies that are traditional in, in this space. The first is to withdraw or, or change the inconsistent measure. We, we've discussed that. That's sort of the, the ideal default uh, that the system works with. A second is um, for the losing state to provide compensation. And that, I would think, we could say is pretty rarely used. What we usually find for a losing state that's not bringing its measure into compliance is the opportunity for the winning state to suspend trade concessions. And, and this is basically retaliation. But it goes through a, a defined process through the system that the WTO sets up, through the institutions of the WTO, where the, the loser gets a reasonable period of time to comply. But if they don't, then we move to these proceedings about compliance and, and the, the winner will request authorization to retaliate uh, and, and a, a, an adjudicator, an arbitrator will determine the appropriate level 
of retaliations in, in retaliation. In other words, what concessions can the winner suspend vis-a-vis -vis the loser uh, to to uh, execute its win, to enforce its its win? So, so that's basically what happens when everything goes to plan. But but as I mentioned, you can also appeal, uh, and that is another unique feature of of the the trade system, uh, one that has certainly come into the public eye uh, recently. Um, so, shall I turn to that? Yes, please. That's the uh, that's an interesting part, and we're having this conversation on a, a very particular day. So I guess it makes sense. We are, we are. This is uh, the big day, the last day that we have an appellate body uh, since 1995, uh, and and that's because uh, after today, two of the three current members of the appellate body uh, will. Uh, end their terms, that is, they expire today at midnight, uh, if uh, one mar marks uh, his or her clock. Uh, but but let me talk about what is the appellate body is intended to, to be and, <laughs> yes. and do before we get to its demise. Um, the appellate body, as it's set up in in the WTO agreements, is an, it's an, a standing body of seven persons, three of whom serve on any one case. So seven, seven folks uh, who are always on call and then they sit in panels of three. They are appointed by consensus of all the WTO members. And that's important because the reason we are in the place we are is because one member, the United States, has not supported the appointment of any new members for many months now. Uh, so a single member can block the appointment of any one of the adjudicators by refusing to join the consensus. But when it all runs according to plan, appellate body members serve four-year terms with the possibility of being reappointed once again by consensus. Now, over its short existence since 1995, it's actually been regarded as a really important part of our trade system, that it, it's contributed to the uh, legitimacy of the WTO. Um, and, and to have an appellate body uh, was a, a real landmark moment uh, following many years of not having one. Uh, and considered, a, you know, it is now a sophisticated international dispute settlement system uh, that could be a model for other areas of international law, it was thought. Uh, and the appellate body has many functions. Of course, as the name suggests, it's reviewing uh, the findings of law primarily uh, by different panels uh, to ensure that the panels got it right. At the same time, some WTO members have uh, voiced concerns about the appellate body regarding both the substance of its decision making and also the procedures that it has applied. Now, this goes back many years. So this, this is not new, the actual concerns themselves, uh, and it's especially coming from the United States, but not exclusively so. So on substantive issues, for example, several members have expressed a concern that the appellate body has exceeded its mandate. They criticize the appellate body for overreaching its authority by filling gaps in the agreements, by construing silences, selectively choosing definitions, and creating obligations for members that were not agreed upon by the members. So just to give an example, the United States commented as early as February 2001 that the appellate body had, quote, arrogated to itself the right to censure particular members for any reason, end quote. Uh, in another instance, it, it, it said that the appellate body had created new obligations that were not found. And I could give many examples over the years. There have been many times where it's either been a matter of dicta or creating new rights. Um, and as I said, these have been raised uh, by, by many members. Members have also raised concern that the appellate body has... Uh, 
discussed issues that were not essential to resolving the dispute. This is sort of a the dicta uh, mm. argument, and it was it was on some of these bases that I've mentioned, and, and it's hard to sort of pick any one as being the cause. But that that the United States opposed the reappointment of different members over the years. But most of the time, the United States would support the appointment of somebody else in their place. So we would, might lose one member who, for whatever reason, the United States thought was not doing something right, for example. Uh, but then somebody new would come along and the United States supported that person's appointment. What that has changed is not, now then? What is, the, yeah, what that, is new? <laughs> right. That, that's not the case uh, since the Trump administration has come along. Um, so... I, let me let me say a little bit about the the Trump administration's position, but but it actually turns uh, the one point that they have been emphasizing uh, the most are some of the procedural issues. So let let me just say a bit about those. Uh, they're short. Uh, the first is that uh, some members have continued to work on appeals after their term has expired, uh, and and normally there's the, well there is in the text. Uh, requirement that appeals be completed within 90 days. And you can imagine that that's a very short time and, and trade disputes are often uh, increasing in complexity over the years. So no longer can the 90-day timeline be met. And so members will stay on for as long as one year after the official end of their terms so that the result may be that only one of three members issuing a report actually has a current appointment. Mm -hmm. And the way that's occurred is, is the appellate body wrote itself some working procedures, um, and that's all laid out in the rules that it can do that, uh, that the appellate body can, with authorization of, of the body, uh, that is, sorry, a member with authorization of the appellate body and notification to all the members, it can, that member can complete the disposition of any appeal. That's the rule that they wrote back in 1996. So that option of staying on was created by the appellate body itself. Um, the United States has taken the position uh, in the last two years at least uh, that that process is, is a big problem. And, and I think that's uh, well, the result of, of, of many issues, but but it's one thing that they can point to that's very clearly not in the original rules written by the members. Uh, so taken together, the, the Trump administration, whether it's it's just being totally uh, exasperated with this this lack of responsiveness uh, from the rest of the membership, saying that, look, we've been raising these concerns for, for 15 years or more uh, and no one's done anything. I think it's a little bit of, of that. There's a lack of responsiveness. There's also uh, a bit of a, a political uh, issue, I think, for this administration that, that thinks very highly of uh, certain constituencies, manufacturing industries that have been affected in the United States by some of these loser cases uh, at the WTO. That is, the United States has lost cases that have had a, a, a disproportionate impact on major manufacturing industries that are near and dear to the hearts of the leadership in the Trump administration. So it's a little mm. bit of a political issue. Mm. Uh, I think there's also um, uh, a, a structural issue that now with with China and the WTO, uh, maybe we didn't anticipate uh, quite the outcomes that, that we have gotten. And a part of that is perhaps the appellate body's fault in the eyes of the Trump administration. Uh, we've also seen many more appeals. I, I gave you the numbers at the outset of how many cases there are. But, but likewise, there were many, many more appeals than I think people anticipated at the time. Uh, and so so all of these together, plus uh, what may be a bit of an ideological divide in the way that the United States reads the text. Uh, and this is where the, the, the Trump administration has really narrowed in uh, in its, its criticisms in, in recent weeks uh, to up to the point of today uh, to say ye at yesterday's meeting in Geneva that uh, we have no guarantee, uh, what, this is what the, the U.S. ambassador to the WTO said, we have no guarantee really that, that 
you all are seeing the problems that we're seeing, such that if, if, we, if we keep the same text or even revise the text in whatever way, that we're not going to have these same problems again. There's nothing here that's going to stop uh, a new appellate body from continuing to go uh, outside its mandate. So tomorrow, we will be down to one member, which means we will have um, no more appeals, uh, no, no ability to hear appeals since you need three uh, to hear them. So that is effectively the end of the appellate body as, as we know it. Um, there are uh, proposals on the table from various governments as to how we might continue to function. Uh, some have asked, you know, will, will the WTO just disappear into irrelevance uh, after tomorrow because now we just don't have any way to resolve it. Just to, to be very clear, what could happen now, this is the concern, is that a member could, could lose a case appeal but you're you're appealing into the void because there's mm. nobody left mm. right so so once you appeal you effectively have permanently stayed the enforcement All of the right. decision right right because there's no way to adopt it if there's an appeal going on which means the winner can't ever enforce it by the retaliation mechanisms that I that I described earlier so it's it's like a, a freeze sort of happens on the case oh, yeah, I see. so uh, although well, consultations and and the panels are still in place and not affected by this on on paper but if you do appeal right you kind of render them moot because there's no point in doing it in the first place. That's exactly right. Yes, so long as the loser can can block the enforcement, which is what happens on on an appeal that's never ended, uh, then uh, what is the point of of doing this at all? You know, that said, there are still disputes that are being filed, uh, and so you know, some governments have continued to to litigate, knowing that there won't be uh, an appellate body after today. Uh, so we're all sort of waiting. What what is going to be the future of this body? What happens to the disputes that are pending currently uh, on on appeal? Well, uh, we we know that there are more than a dozen uh, that are are pending. We we've heard that some will be released. Uh, I, I I understand that they, that was people had in the, in the chatter in Geneva suggested that we'll we'll get some decisions uh, before the end of the day, uh, perhaps. Um, but there are some that are certainly at earlier stages, and and nobody really knows what will happen. I, I think again, everyone's sort of guessing. Well, maybe those those governments, if they're um, if they're on good terms, one might say, then maybe they can reach uh, an interim conclusion that will that will serve them. Um, and then others, uh, I think, uh, will just uh, remain yeah, unenforced. One might say. Oh, interesting times to to be alive, especially as there are <laughs> in the world of investment arbitration. Of course, there are efforts to try to create something new, and there's a new wind of optimism blowing through the the state community, but it seems it's not exactly the same uh, mood in the WTO system. Yes, I, 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 that's certainly true. And, and then I, I've heard some people say, well, there are uh, probably, you know, the efforts to create a multilateral investment court should be aware that this is happening uh, and that, uh, you know, state buy-in is only so sound and, and the legitimacy behind these institutions uh, may be more fragile than, than we thought. So, um, you know, one can explore that in, in greater detail, but it's certainly, uh, I think, a disappointment from those who, who celebrated the success of creating such a body uh, to see us at this point. Mm, sad, but probably, unfortunately, a, a reasonable note to end on, I'm afraid. Mm -hmm. uh, this will be out a week after maybe something else would have popped up in the time in between we, we record and yes. we publish this. Yes, that would be great. Like, 
this is this is what could have been this terribleness, but by the time you hear this, it will all be resolved, and we'll all be singing uh, Kumbaya. Yeah, exactly. Let's let's pray for that. Thank you so much, Kathleen, for taking the time to uh, educating us. I already feel at least twenty five percent smarter. <laughs> well, thanks so much for, again for inviting me. It was fun. I hope it's useful uh, to our listeners. And uh, well, watch the space. <laughs> So as mentioned, uh, we're going to talk about the intersection of religion and arbitration, which Brian thinks is actually not connected, or an oxymoron, maybe. Prove me or, wrong. Yeah. <laughs> prove you wrong. Um, well, you know, we. I just thought about how, uh, when we discussed it amongst us about the topic, um, started doing some some quick research, and the immediate thing that popped up was it's incredible the number of pages that come up as it's called religious arbitration. So there's a thing called religious arbitration, oh. and they're faith-based arbitrations. <gasps> so oh. that's the that's the thing, actually, because when you think about it, religion. What is you know what is religion? Maybe we should um, you know I'm talking to an, oh, at least one academic here um, <laughs> in front of me, and several others probably who are listening. So we should always. Uh, I was told in my French school start by defining. Just the terms, right? So, what is religion? Um, I'm looked up in the Oxford Dictionary <laughs> because I don't want to get into trouble by citing any sources and upset people. But um, you know, I found that this 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 definition of action or conduct indicating belief in obedience to and reverence for a god or gods or similar superhuman power, the performance of religious rites or observance um, or religious rites. You know, so. Um, so, you know, when I was reading this definition, I thought to myself, well, that actually sounds, doesn't it sound, you know, a bit, uh, I mean, it's, it's different, obviously, but it's, it's a bit connected to when we talk about what is customary international law. I mean, customary <laughs> international, what is customary international law? I mean, I'm going to ask you guys, do you know the definition? Or oh, at least what years. are the two, the, the two, like, elements of customary international law? Yes, it's, it's state practice and opinion juris. Yes, so what is opinion juris, Mr. De Pointe? It is the expression uh, that you want to be bound by the practice. Right, that you want to be bound by the practice. So religion in that sense is a set of norms that would be binding then uh, because you want to be bound by that set of norms. And, um, and, and, and it's interesting because just as an example, you can see um, that it's, you know, if we start by the, because we're talking about Christmas and, the, you know, the Christian faith, I, I looked up what is Christian arbitration. And there is such a thing called, wait for it, the Institute for Christian Conciliation, the ICC. <laughs> and it's true. And it's located in uh, California in the U.S., which is interesting. Yeah. <laughs> um, and Why so, there? and they refer to, uh, yeah, there's, there's a Christian conciliation, which is a process for reconciling people and resolving disputes out of court in a biblical manner. Um, so what is the reference to biblical manners? Because in the Bible, actually, there is a reference to arbitration and conciliation but maybe not expressly, but indirectly. Uh, when it says, settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still with him on the way, or he may hand you over to the judge, 
and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. <laughs> <laughs> Is that so in the Bible? That's in the Bible, what? yeah. And so in the Word, it's, you know, better you should, you should probably conciliate your disputes early on or settle them before you take the matters to, to court, right? Right. Yeah. Or you may be thrown into prison. Are you going to be thrown into prison? Are you going to be thrown into prison? was arbitrable. According to the Holy Bible? Well, according to the Bible, I'm afraid I do not know uh, the Probably. the the answer to that. I know that under Islamic law, at least, it's not arbitrable. Oh. I mean, the, I know. I'm the, saying that now with a, a little doubt in my voice. I think no, I, mean, I read this. I mean, that makes sense. There are some non-arbitrable issues. So, you know, in, in that sense, in the Bible, you know, they encourage you to um, settle your disputes before taking them to court. Um, and in fact, there was a research done uh, around in the 90s or something uh, about Christian-based companies. So a number of whatever that means, Christian-based company in the U.S. And they were like real. Chick-fil-A or people that are very <laughs> religious. Yeah. And they've referred that they include what is called as a Christian arbitration clause in their engagement letter, which is that reference to, you know, um, you're just trying to settle the disputes beforehand. I imagine that's what it means. Um, and so, you know, in a way, the ICC, and now referring again still to the Institute for Christian Conciliation, I'm saying it again just in case people just listen to that part, <laughs> <laughs> uses a multi... Some junior lawyers going to go to yeah. California and be like... Yeah, what is this? <laughs> and they use a multi-step clause where the processes are structured as a process, you know. Um, and, uh, and so I, I just thought that was, that was uh, really interesting that um, in, it, there was some data that was uh, conducted and apparently commercial cases in this institute of Christian, um, a Christian conciliation uh, are settled 80% to 90% of the time in mediation without the need to proceed to the binding arbitration phase. Interesting. Mm. Um, and now why is that? Well, we were talking about the concept of belief. There's also this importance between you believe that the decision that is rendered has to be enforceable. Hence, you will abide by it because that's part of your belief system, mm -hmm. right? So in a way, religion is, um, you know, forcing you or, <laughs> or at least telling you that you should comply with the decision. Right? Yeah, there's no need for a New York convention. Yeah, well, exactly. Why would you need the New York convention if you believe in, uh, you I'm know... I'm taking all my cases to Christian conciliation. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, Islam. Islam, similarly in the Quran, actually refers to arbitration. Actually, there are specific matters that you can take to arbitration that you have to take to arbitration, such as um, marriage. For example, if you're having some issues in your marital life, you should first appoint an arbitrator or referee, referred to as hakam, um, which is, who is appointed for the family of each spouse to reconcile the married couple. And uh, only when the arbitrators fail to reach an amicable settlement of the disputes, then a judge can pronounce the divorce. Interesting. Yeah, so that's in the Quran. Um, and then there's also, and that I thought was really interesting, a lot of um, references to the Prophet uh, Muhammad's commitment to act as an arbitrator in disputes between people living under his authority, irrespective of their religion. And apparently he was a party to a dispute with the Jewish tribe of Banu Kuryasya. I don't know how to pronounce it, in which the parties chose to have recourse to arbitration. And in fact, the first treaty, the Treaty of Medina, which was entered into by the Muslim community under the Prophet's leadership with non-Muslim, so including Jewish and pagan people, uh, uh, provided for the resolution of disputes to arbitration. So it goes back to 
goes back, back, back. We have the oldest profession. Yeah, it's we do have the oldest. It's, it's we, arbitration. Yeah. And like I man er, um, mentioned earlier, under Sharia law, um, there are some non-arbitrable disputes, such as, uh, well, I've noted down criminal law, so I, it seems that it is non-arbitrable, or matters of guardianship, things like that. So, um, yeah. And so, and, and in fact, uh, when, I mean, it's not a theoretical uh, discourse, because how can religion be applicable to your arbitration? Brian, Joel, how can it be? Well, you can have the governing law be Sharia law. Yes, exactly. You can have the governing law as Sharia law. You could have the seat of arbitration is seated in a country where there's Sharia law applicable, and then maybe that would be applicable in that way. It could be also the law of the parties, right? So mm -hmm. it can be the arbitration clause. So it, it, it's very important to know at least the basic concepts of, of Sharia law right. um, if you are going to be putting that jurisdiction you know, like in your no contract. Like there's no interest, right? Uh, yes, that is correct. That right. is one of the things. I mean, one of the questions is, you know, could you enforce an award um, that is subject to Sharia law if, if you know, there was interest that was awarded? Right. What was that? I mean, there was a case on that. That's why. Uh, yeah, well... <laughs> You know what? I should know about that one, but I don't have it listed <laughs> here. But look it up, people. Look <laughs> it up because that's a, a, a real a real thing. Also, like there's this importance we were talking about how um, the fact that you should be felt bound to comply with an award, but also bound by your contractual obligation. That is, for example, under um, Islamic law, it emphasizes the importance of respecting contractual obligations. So if you don't respect your contractual obligation, you're um, you know, in violation of um, of Sharia law, and in fact, there was a case, there was an arbitration, uh, an old one, the Saudi Arabia Aramco case, where the arbitrator was uh, Sabah Habachi, and uh, in that case, it was subject uh, not just but also to Islamic law, and so he made a statement about you know um, how you, you know I can cite to what he says, but he says in man-made law. The yardstick according to which the unlawful or immoral character of an act is to be measured is the public interest and morals of the community looked from a purely human angle. In Muslim law, on the other hand, the yardstick is the revealed law of God. Consequently, according to the Sharia, an illegal or an immoral contract is not merely an antisocial act, it is also a sin and constitutes an offense against God as well as against God's creature. So it should be borne in mind that while modern legal institutions have achieved complete separation of church and state, the Sharia is still a religion, an ethnic, and a law all in one. So reference to wow. Sharia law in the arbitration award in itself. Um, and there's, you know, additional things like you mentioned. There's um, interest that is prohibited, um, and of course, I'm not a specialist in Sharia law, so I can't give you the details about, you know, to what extent that is. Um, that applies, um, but it is true that you have to be very careful um, when you're issuing an award under Sharia law. There's also no concept of sovereign immunity under Islamic law. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Less Islamic, yeah. Islamic law compels rulers to uphold the well-being and interest of the state and their subjects, and provides them with no immunity uh, for their action. Uh, in fact, it is uh, there's some famous Muslim scholars that provide that there is no one who breaks faith more guilty. Um, than he who commands the common people. So actually, this should be, uh, even more yeah, this should be, uh, yeah, exactly, even more liable for their acts. 
Um, so, you know, that's that's an interesting point to keep in mind, yeah. <laughs> I guess. Um, and then, you know, there's also the concept of uh, expropriation for public utility, um, and um, that is mentioned under Sharia law, same as uh, what you would find under a regular BIT, for example. Mm -hmm. um, so this is all very interesting, um, and I, you know, I also uh, had some quick research, and I found out that and, and I started with that, that religion could in some instances become part of the customary law applicable at least to the parties. And such was the case, um, you know, pre-colonial times at least um, in Africa, uh, where, um, you know, in Nigeria, Ghana or Sudan, um, the part of the customary practice there uh, was that a dispute uh, would be settled to arbitration and that they would respect the decision that mm -hmm. was rendered by the arbitrator. Um, and and, and so that that was also an interesting part, but I was thinking of how also, uh, and that was a debate that came into, uh, especially in the, in the UK recently. Um, there was a, a lot of debate on arbitrator appointments and religion. Does that ring a bell to any of either of you guys? Yes. Mm, vaguely. Vaguely, that there was um, an issue about an arbitra arbitration clause that referred right. to an arbitrator exactly that he had to be part of the Ismaili community. Still, don't you don't remember the name of the case or what what no, problem it was? No, but I excuse myself because I'm not in. No, that's okay. That's okay. It is actually a, a very and it was an English um, an English case um, in that that was before the Supreme Court. And I thought it was just a couple of years ago, but it was almost 10 years ago. Oh, <laughs> it wow. was in 2011, yeah. <laughs> I literally thought it was a couple of years ago. It's the Javraj Hajvani case. And the question that was put forward was uh, whether arbitrators are employees um, under um, under the employment equality um, under the employment equality regulations. Uh, the issue before the Supreme Court uh, was brought before the Supreme Court because in, there was an arbitration clause that provided that the arbitrators were supposed to be from the uh, members of the Ismaili community. Um, and then at some point, you know, um, they just couldn't find anyone who was available and they appointed an arbitrator um, who was not of an Ismaili um, community. And in fact, I don't even think it was because he was they weren't available. It's just that they thought, okay, well, this, this clause actually is not enforceable. Not enforceable and... Um, they uh, they mentioned that um, they would not it would amount to religious discrimination under the Human Rights Act uh, of 1998 and should should be void because of that um, and so there was a series of um, you know the decisions before the High Court um, and then after it it was before the Court of Appeal and the Supreme Court uh, to determine whether or not that arbitration clause was void or not um, and do you remember the result? They said that it was not void. They said that it was not void, but do you remember why they said that? Um, no. Well, <laughs> the core thing of arbitration, right, is um, the law of the parties. So the parties have the right to appoint anyone they want. Um, and in that in that sense, uh, the Supreme Court, um, you know, emphasized that um, that um, these oh, sorry 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 I'm just looking at my notes. Uh, yeah, the Supreme Court considered that an arbitrator was not employed by the parties to an arbitration for the purposes of the regulation. Oh right. Um, and that because it wasn't it, 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 it the key thing was that it is not working under the direction of the parties. 
right? So mm -hmm. in that sense, it wasn't considered um, an employee, and so the regulation wasn't applicable. But even if it were, even if the regulation was applicable, then the exception of the regulation would apply, and there was an exception that provided that um, if there was the employer was from a certain ethos based on religion or belief, and uh, having regarded that, um, you know, because of the nature of the employment, it was important that, you know, an employee was part of that religion or belief, then you could be, that was an exception. And they looked at the Ismaili ethos and the nature of the employment, and then it was Gosh, necessary. To like stop it, party autonomy. Yeah, 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 exactly. But they <laughs> thought that it was really important in that specific matter that he was from the Ismaili religion. And they actually referred also to the conciliation institutions that existed from the Ismaili community and yada, 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 and how it was important to resolve disputes. So that was important. And so it made me think religion could be part is part of your identity, as is gender mm -hmm. or ethnicity or the race. And uh, so do you think something should be done for a more diverse tribunal or diverse, you know, arbitral appointments with respect to religion? I Joel and I brought this up I think in a previous episode because we talked about Bringing diversity. Oh, because oh, it was um. What did it, what does it call the defunct panel? Uh, defective. Defective uh, tribunal yes, means yeah. if you have like you know someone that's not identified as a minority, and then we yeah. said, well, it's really only racial and maybe you know gender, and then we said maybe racial. What about like sexual orientation? Mm -hmm. So I mean, I we've talked, we've briefly touched on this, but I, I don't. Um, I, let's say, let's say, for example, you have a mining company that's owned by a bunch of Jews, and then you get a tribunal appointed only by Christians. Mm -hmm. Do can they object? Why are you laughing? Because the way I said Jews. Because <laughs> anyone who's not Jewish would be like the Jewish people of Bethlehem. Uh, okay, so these Jews, these dreidels, uh, had a. I. It's an interesting question, and I don't know like how you would regulate that but to to object that you're you know you have a panel that um you need to have someone who's jewish on the panel if it wasn't in the um arbitration clause and yeah. initially and I, it sounds like so far every example that Saudi has given people agreeing to christian conciliation people agreeing to sharia law is applicable the whole presumption and including this case then because that was crucial to the uk supreme court as well they all involve cases where the parties want the same thing and we can assume that the parties share their religion but it of course gets slightly more tricky when you have parties from different religions i think mm -hmm. yeah right. yeah exactly and and also like where do you draw the line right i mean i'm just thinking about the jay-z case that famous right. thing uh, that came up um where uh, Jay-Z, who's the, of course, the famous rapper who I introduce as the husband of Beyonce. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he, uh, yeah, he, um, he, he made an objection based on the arbitration clause that provided for AAA arbitrators, and then he said, well, I looked at the list of AAA arbitrators, and there was no arbitrator that was, um, you know, black American. Mm-hmm. Uh, men, actually, he mentioned. Oh. <laughs> there were a women, but... Um, oh, really? Yeah, that's, that's insane. Yeah, people don't mention that. Um, yeah, so, so you know, what what does that mean? Is that if I want an arbitrator and then I'm like, oh, well, that person is not from my religious belief, so I yeah. feel, like, underrepresented, and how, you know, this it's just, it's just very... Or let's put it the other way. If, if 
there's um, a Jewish party on one side and a Muslim party on one side, and you yeah. get a point, and three Muslims get appointed by the institute. Yeah. Could you then object that there's some sort of bias on behalf of the arbitrators based right. on some like subtext of religious yeah. affiliation? Because you would have some bias, and yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I think that could potentially rub off just because I know how Jews help Jews out. So <laughs> I would definitely, <laughs> if, if you're against the Jewish party and there's a Jewish tribunal, <gasps> you object. Immediately. Oh, come on. But that, that, you can apply that for anything, right? I mean, when they call about, you know, the cliques of arbitration, yeah. people are friends, well, you know, are they part of the same? And it's true, are they going to church together, you know? I mean, is that... Even is the that one? gender. I mean, it yeah. was it was a, the discussion <clears throat> with gender. I mean, the, the guys would be the ones smoking cigars back in the day, and, yeah. you know, if you're the woman who's counsel of the other yeah, side you're yeah. not privy to that type yeah. of camaraderie yeah, yeah, yeah it's true and then sometimes it could be some political you know um pressure also um because of which religion you belong to or not that you are not even controlling even if you don't care but the fact that the state right where you're from it matters i mean if you're from That's palestine or something but one thing that was interesting is i also saw there was a 2017 um survey that was made by um Oh, sorry, it was a survey, yeah, it's called the berwin Lathan pisner Survey on Diversity on Arbitral Tribunals. Um, and of the 39% of participants who sat as an arbitrator, um, there were 3% of them <laughs> that mentioned that they, uh, they thought they had lost appointments because of their religion. So very small oh. number, but it, it also came up next to because of their gender, National identity, ethnicity, and because they were too young. <laughs> oh, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that also can create a thing, you know. I think it goes, uh, but it goes both ways, right? Maybe yeah. you would appoint someone because they're from a certain religion, or then say, oh right. no, I don't want this guy because he's not from that religion. So that's so, so rare, though, isn't it? In modern commercial practice, I have the sense that we use nationality often <coughs> as a proxy for religion. Right. It doesn't really work in super multicultural states such as the U.S. or France, but for example, in your scenario, right, where there are three Muslim arbitrators appointed, I don't think most institutions would do that because you would try to find a neutral nationality of the chair, for example, and then almost by extension, you know, you assume that someone from North Africa will be a Muslim and someone from Russia will be an Orthodox Christian, for example. Right. Mm -hmm. No, I think you're right. And I, I will caveat to say that if I ever appoint a Jewish arbitrator, Anybody cannot object to me just because of what I said about people. <laughs> yes, of I'm going to write that red line right there. Um, no, 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 but I, th I think you're right, Joe. I, I, these are extreme situations, and we're really busting the seams to get, like, um, to test the theorem, but that's um, what legal analysis is all about. Yeah, and also, like, it's such a private thing, I think. So would you want, have, how would you even know that some per one person is Jewish or Muslim right. until they... You know, we were just talking about it earlier, mm -hmm. like, where are you, where are you? Like, we yeah. don't even know, <laughs> you know? So how, that's, that it's very dangerous, right? If you start publishing where you're from or what. I know, it's, it, it's almost like a very good setup for a joke that we are uh, a, a Muslim, an atheist, and a Jew sitting here talking about <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. A Muslim, an atheist, and a Jew walking to a bar. Who do they, who do they appoint as their bartender? Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, all right, so yeah, that was it, guys. I mean, I you know obviously I could uh, speak about it for for hours. There's a lot of research that has been done on 
the impact of religion on the enforcement of awards, how religion in intersects with, um, you know, the fact that you have to comply with your contractual obligation under Sharia law, et cetera, et cetera. And on that Jiraj case, which uh, if people are interested in, they should definitely have a look. Um, but, you know, we just thought it was a good topic during the holidays. I also want to talk about practicing religion and how to be religious in arbitration. We mm -hmm. can do that in a separate, it's almost maybe more of a happy fun time. Yeah, I actually have some anecdotes on that. So yeah, we'll exactly. Because at first I was like, oh, should I mention the time where I had to like plead in a hijab? Uh, not a hijab, in a baya, sorry. Because that, that is a true story. When I went to Riyadh, I was wearing an abaya. Um, and, uh, you know, you, you kind of, the arbitration procedure rules, you kind of have to adapt to where you are, of right? Course. And, uh, I mean, I just didn't want to take it. <laughs> no, 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 absolutely. Um, so you have to and adjust your calendars. Who puts a hearing during Christmas? Or oh, Eve, right. Right? Mm. That's also a thing. So it governs us all the time, <laughs> everywhere. Religion is everywhere. Yes. All right. All Let's right, guys. Are we ready for or a beer? Yeah. Okay. Oh, or not? Or if not. you're not, oh, yeah. if you okay. drink alcohol. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> yes. All right. And we will wrap off, wrap off, wrap up and <laughs> wrap in a present 2019. Uh, got it? Uh, nice <laughs> it's a wrap off. Uh, <laughs> but not wrapping, they're just like wrapping presents. I, I would lose. I have like a fundamental aversion to wrapping. Oh, really? Yeah, it was Because you don't know how to do it properly. It's been a tough year, exactly. <laughs> Uh, 2019 is coming to a close, and there's nothing more exciting about that than gift giving. And to initiate this segment, can you hear? Can you hear? I've gotten a gift from yeah. Sadia. <gasps> Stockings are my favorite part about Christmas. <laughs> it's not that exciting. Oh, I didn't know he was gonna. I won't read the card aloud. Yeah, it's probably <laughs> best if you read it on your own. Thank uh, you. It's a stocking with some amazing... Red stocking. If people are wondering why we're offering... You know, people are listening from all around the world. They probably... They, right. Everybody doesn't know what a stocking like entails, maybe. Oh, yeah. It, <laughs> is, it looks like a boot. A knee-high boot. Yeah. Um, and it's red and white. It's really nice. And it has... <laughs> it's from Hotel Chocolate. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome. What did the stocking I get from you, Brian? Hotel Chocolate. <laughs> Um, it's in the mail. <laughs> Didn't know we were doing this this year. <laughs> no, um, you don't have to. You don't have to reciprocate. I mean, that's a, so we can start like that. Like, if you have a colleague that gives you a gift, do you feel like you have to give a gift in return? Yeah. Um, you do? No, 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 no. <laughs> Definitely not. I think it's just the the pleasantries of giving. Yes. Um, but I think there's one like obligation I think which is to the support or secretary. Oh staff. really? Yeah, okay. Do you have that obligation? I've never I or mean the, the culture? Well the thing is I do feel like I need to do it, but honestly I don't know where that belief came from because nobody ever told me you gotta do this. Right. In New York though somebody told me you gotta pay your doorman. You uh, not pay him, sorry, give him a gift at Christmas. Right. They really it's really important it's for them. And mm. I'm like, okay, that's like a real thing. It's that tipping culture, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Which you know, no one ever told me in the firm where you gotta buy something for your secretary or something, but you just feel like yeah, you're right. It's a nice thing to I, do. I never use mine, but I mean at, for that one time I need to expense something, I guess I should get them here. <laughs> and you expense the gift 
get the yeah. <laughs> oh my god, can you imagine? Can you spend that? Here's the gift and here's the receipt. I need to get paid back. <laughs> Oh, oh, so terrible. It is a yes. joy. It, is it, Jules? Is that how you feel when you give <laughs> gifts to us or non-gifts that you it gives you joy? I I told you I'm a very bad giver, but I, I I sincerely feel that giving gifts to me is only meaningful if it comes without the expectation of getting something in return. Of yes, of course. So I don't belong to the school of. You know, it should be a bilateral exchange with yeah. me. Yeah, <laughs> bilateral exchange. <laughs> of Everything course. Everything in treaty terms. Everything, yes. And yeah, it shouldn't be like. And it's not like that. It really isn't. No. I don't think there there is this this feeling. Um, okay, so let's change gears for a second, mm -hmm. um, because it can get a bit muddy um, dealing with gifts and your clients. Mm -hmm. Oh right. Um, both directions. Mm -hmm. uh, let's start with the first direction, which is probably a bit muddier, which is um, getting receiving gifts from clients. Receiving gifts from clients. So I had, um, you know, the Mikulas were a client at my mm -hmm. previous firm. They owned a um, distillery. Mm -hmm. So we got a bottle of alcohol. Mm -hmm. We were in a meeting and they're like, here's a bottle of alcohol. Do you think that's appropriate? I think that's okay. I think if it's just, I mean, Good. it depends what the <laughs> what the amount of the bottle is. Uh, probably. Um, I don't know. Question. Objection. Leading question. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess there is um, a monetary, you yes. know, yeah. threshold. What is? Yeah, um, exactly. It's like the, it's like the NFL players. It's you know, or what is it? The college basketball players. It's like if they get, you know, a a second, or I haven't played video games forever, like a Nintendo Switch versus getting them like a fleet of cars, which one is bribing them to join the university? Mm -hmm. um, I guess it's the, the that type of finger in the air test. Um, but one for taxes as well, isn't it? You have a, a, a yeah. limit for when you have to, to declare it in your taxes. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah that's true. Um, but then, I mean, we're all bound by our ethical rules of art. Well, I mean, for me, because I'm not... Um, well, I, I'm bound by the SRA as well for being a foreign lawyer registered here. I think here. you are, yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm the Solicitor's Regulation, Regulation Authority. Authority. So it's like the ethical board that mm -hmm. anytime you have any problems, you can you We are closely to listening to what we are saying. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they've bugged my phone. Um, they've actually just changed the rules. I've had a whole training on it. So, uh, But I don't really know the rule about accepting gifts, but I think it just cannot amount to a bribe, and that's um, what... what the yeah. deal is yeah um but i don't know how that would ever really come up where you're well maybe your client is very wealthy and wants to take you on their yacht and but if they want to gift you a yacht as sort of like a um a uh a success fee for example we won this huge case i've just won four, 500 million dollars oh here's a yacht to thank you what <laughs> does that happen to you well i turned out a couple <laughs> Yeah, I don't even know if that would be. I don't know if that would be okay. Actually. No, I don't think it would be okay at yeah, all. Yeah. Um, because then it seems yeah. like you have a personal interest in the case. Um, well, if you have a success fee. Right. Even if right. Even if it wasn't written in, though. Yeah. Um, but it's true that we have all these red flags, like that we have to look up, look for, and we have our. You know, every firm has their compliance officer, and just yesterday, actually, I just got a huge packet in the mail. Uh, from um, and that was actually from a funder. Oh, really? That I used, yeah, for a case. Um, and I was like, okay, what is this? And I opened it. It was like a huge box of chocolate, which is, you know, that's, uh, that's very nice. Um, 
And my secretary was like, do I need to declare? Do I need to, you know, tell the compliance? I was like, what? I didn't even think about that. And right. I was like, well, I don't know. Check with them. Yeah, but I think it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, I've been Did you win the case? For, Did yeah. you win the case? Uh, well, no, it's just, it's just ongoing. Oh, so that's fine. I yeah, mean, it's no ongoing. Like... Yeah, 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 it's ongoing. But um, I think the other way is quite is easier, which is um, giving gifts to clients. Oh, right, yeah. Um, because there is no ethical... Well, you have to be. There are some guidelines, I think. That you can't... Well, I guess, yeah, if you're like securing business, I guess right. it would be. Um, but just... I've, I've wanted to say this, because this is like a hot tip from my mentor, mm. Sharon Saif, in my past job, which was how thoughtful she was to her client in the sense that they're actually human beings and they have birthdays and children with birthdays. And if you, you, you work on these cases, mm-hmm. I mean, you work, I've worked with the family for eight years. Um, you lit, you become yeah, friends with them really. Mm-hmm. And so if they have like a new child in the family or there's a wedding, like mm-hmm. I think it is not only appropriate, but like really sets you above the rest as far as like being, um, having good bedside manner to kind of get them a small <laughs> token of appreciation. Yes. Uh, yes, but you, y- y- it's true. But you have to be, there's sometimes, again, like I have to correct myself and be careful with something. So just recently met up with some, you know, government officials. And yes, we are already working for them on a case. But, um, and we, it was as simple as just taking uh, him out for a coffee. Right. And, you know, paying for cake or something. And I was just going to... And this is like we do this all the time, right? And it's totally fine here. Um, but in that part of the world where I was, um, mm. I went to get the check. And he had a moment of hesitation. And he said, you know what? Let me just get it. And I was like, what? Why? What? No, don't be ridiculous. You know, I was like, oh, right. let me pay for it kind of thing. And he was like, listen, I just prefer because you never know what people say. And mm. I just don't want to have any issue with, you know, you guys paying for, for me for something or... Right. And I was like, wow, yeah. Yeah, exactly. The yeah, I guess it's more up. sensitive. Yeah, I mean, you just don't want to take any risk, right? In I mean, Sweden, they'd be like, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't think there'd be a problem, but if it was someplace like here where, like, money laundering rooms rampant, yeah. then you'd want to, like... Well, you just And also holiday giving, apparently, is a thing. Like, sometimes, you know, people would fly in, oh, people right. fly out people, and, you know, that's, that's also a gift, in a way. Yeah, um, absolutely. <clears throat> um, Careful. Joel, you don't have to give anyone gifts like in academia. Uh, no, but I do get gifts from students. Ah, uh, I was going to ask you about that. Oh. Do you have to make a declaration about this? Uh, probably. <laughs> you should. <laughs> or refuse them. Yeah, because it's the same thing, right? I mean, you're grading these people. Yeah, so that that has happened a few times. I received gifts, but at the end of the course, but also for for holidays, so for Christmas specifically, of course. And that, that makes me a very happy and b a little bit uncomfortable. Generally, I think a good a good rule of thumb is not to give gifts to teachers if they will be in a position of grading you. So either the course should be over or it should be someone who is not tasked with grading your performance later on. Mm-hmm. Right. Otherwise, you run the risk. It's similar, you know, to having a, a client who might might not look great from the outside. Although I should say, for the record, that in Sweden we generally grade all exams at least anonymously. So you wouldn't know, right? Well, you know your student. I mean, you know that they're part of your class. 
Yeah, but when they, so they, for the exams, it's not the same for thesis when you know the exact subject, of course, but if it's just exams, I get everything anonymized through a system. So oh, okay, I, I, only get a, I only know the code, an anonymous code, instead of the student's name, so I don't know who, who wrote what exam, for example. But there's no, like, participa participation grades or something like that, just the fact that they did a presentation or something? We don't have that that much, oh, okay. actually. It's generally not a problem, so we've been such a, a boringly um, Joel, I'm going to put you on the spot a bit. Do you have any good gift ideas for 2019? <sighs> Directly on the spot. <laughs> a book? He's just going to be like, my book just came yeah. out. <laughs> Um, I, I don't have any, but I guess Cards Against Humanity are good for lawyers because they like to be wordsmiths and create irony and puns in, uh, in a sentence. But I, I don't have any like novel books that I can recommend. Do you have any books that you can recommend? Um, I mean, it just really depends on who you're gifting, right? I mean, it depends if they're into fiction or nonfiction. Right. Or I, I was just mostly thinking of what is appropriate and what is not appropriate. If you are, you know, in like for example, you take the example of you want to gift your colleagues um, and you work together. Um, you know, are there, and, and you do like this secret Santa. You know, some people do this right. thing where you are, you have to gift someone, you know who they are, they don't know who you are. And, um, and usually there's like a limit, a uh, dollar amount limit. Right. So it's under $10 or whatever it is, so that people don't go overboard and. Or and everyone's kind of gifting the same kind of stuff. But then even in this scenario, I've heard horror stories really? of people getting gifts that made them extremely uncomfortable, and that was considered inappropriate, um, you know, in the in you know the context of the firm or just right. you know, business relationship, just usually. Um, so do you, you know? Has this ever happened to you guys? Or do you have any? You were talking about you know having guidelines yeah. in the firm about what you could gift as a gift, maybe, or whether you could give gifts. Is that what you had in mind? Uh, no, no, no. I just had in I just had in mind like a good gift to give. Yeah, so just like yeah. suggestions to people listening, like what they could give. But I, I don't think I have any stories of anyone doing anything inappropriate. But you know, like even books could be inappropriate, you know, and just just like, why did this person give me right. that? Right, giving book? someone like Fifty Shades yeah. of Grey. Yeah, or exactly, <laughs> like something like that. But I heard it was a good book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. That would be inappropriate. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. That's just, would, yeah. Exactly. I don't know what the guidelines would be, but it's clearly like nothing. Se I guess you could say like nothing sexual, drug related, or like criminal. <laughs> drug related. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or criminal. Yeah. Only legal gifts. Only legal yeah, gifts. Legal gifts, Only please. books. Only treatises. It's really only books, isn't it? Yeah. It's like books or and chocolate. maybe like a funny gift. Yeah, or chocolate. You can't go wrong with books. I would recommend any kind of book. That or a functioning appellate body of the WTO. That would be an excellent gift this year. <laughs> yes. Yes. If that would you be can good. make that happen, that would be a very good gift. Is your uh, PhD going to be a book, Joel? Don't ask me. Oh, no. Why did <laughs> oh, you ask it? Tough question. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just still trying to get you some extra sales. <laughs> More yeah, than one. Cause who's at some point. I'm under various contractual obligations. So Not to talk uh, about it. Right, okay. Such an American in litigation. Okay, we won't. <laughs> uh, we won't fine. Well, people that are listening and dying to hear what they should give um, their colleagues, uh, sorry, check Amazon. <laughs> Check them. Oh, like you know, like one thing that I think is nice is everyone always has coffee and tea in this like ugly mugs. 
That's that are good. part from the office, right? That's They're always good. have the, If you could have a nice mug, and every time someone has a nice mug, I'm like, oh, I'm gonna get myself one, and mm. I never do, you right. know, because you're like, it's the office. You drink the ratty office mug. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So that that kind of stuff. That is a good nice. one, actually. Someone in my office gave someone that recently, so that is yeah. a, that is a good one. Yeah. Um, really exciting stuff. <laughs> Uh, I don't know what what. Uh, there was else? a girl who always wore headphones or works with headphones, so you, you can get them like an iTunes card or a oh, right. or or cheap headphones from the store, or uh, you know Google Nest has like really cheap speakers, so you can have in your room oh, right. if you want. Yeah. All room related gadgets. And yeah, or computers like that you get computers yeah. for your team. Like here you go, new Mac. Yeah, <laughs> everyone. Everyone gets new. Especially movement. my yeah. bosses. I would like to get like those headphone thing. I mean, I have those now, the AirPods. But yeah. it would be nice for, you know, if you're listening. Exactly. <laughs> our managing partner to like exactly. give a pair to, to the whole everyone office. in the oh, office. Like my East German. <laughs> what is this? Right I <laughs> feel like I need to fly you at aid. <laughs> Joel's wearing like over the ear in the 90s, like walking. Yeah, around. exactly. And like, he runs in those, don't you, Joel? Yeah, they were my running and podcast recording. <laughs> <laughs> Equally sweaty and, and tiring. Uh, well, that wraps up the year. Um, Sadia, thank you for joining us so far. Oh, thank it's you. Been thank nice. you for having Can't me. Can't wait for next year. Yeah. Um, we'll come back fresh. I'll come back tan. Um, Joel what? will what? come back. I didn't know that. Where are you going? I'm going to Cape Town. Ah. I'm going to, oh yeah, let's wind up with where we're going. And, yeah. the, and you guys aren't going anywhere, probably. Yeah, thank you very much for that question. <laughs> Only the people who are le- you know, going somewhere <laughs> ask that question. Well, Any vacation plans? <laughs> um, fine. I'm going to Cape Town. You're not. You're staying in the city. I um, no, my family's in France, so I'm going to be Christmas in Paris. Yeah. Could yeah. be worse. Yeah. Joel, where are you going to be? I'm doing Christmas in Sweden and uh, New Year's in New York, and I suspect I might be in New York when we record the next episode, which Ooh. will probably come out sometime early January. Yes. Maybe. 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 Uh, yeah. Um, I'll yeah. be. I'll be back, and we'll be back. Thank you, guys, and happy holidays. Happy to holidays, all. and happy Merry New Christmas Year to the people who celebrate Christmas, because it is Christmas. That's right. Happy Hanukkah. Happy Hanukkah. 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 Is it gone? The twenty second. Oh, twenty second. Yes. Okay, so happy Hanukkah. Thank you. Happy Kwanzaa. <laughs> we always say that in the U.S. It's really weird. Wow. Well, okay. All right. Happy um, Kwanzaa. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Before, before we say goodbye, we also should say thank you to Jan Kunster. We have thought we have thanked all of our uh, researchers so far, but Jan Kunster is really the one who who makes this all happen because oh, he edits the whole the thing, magician. and comes up with suggestions, and improves things, and generally runs the whole show. Yes. Thank you, Jan. Thank you, Jan. Add Thank him on you, LinkedIn. Thank you, Jan. Joel will send you a gift from all the three of us. Yes. Ex- <laughs> an expensive one. <laughs> all right, guys. See ya. Bye. See ya.